0: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
2: This is the Tom Hartman Programme. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. I want to do a deep dive into a new book that I find absolutely fascinating. Craig Unger is the author of five books on the Republican War on Democracy. His latest is American Compromise. He's a Vanity Fair contributor for the past 15 years. His Twitter handle is Craig Unger, C-R-A-I-G-U-N-G-E-R. The book is absolutely extraordinary. Craig, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked.
3: Thanks for having me, Tom.
2: It's absolutely my pleasure. I've had people call into this program and echo a question that has occurred to me on more than one occasion. For the last four years, we had a president who dismantled large parts of the American government, who tried to put toadies into the American justice system who would overlook the crimes of foreign dictators, and not just any one country, multiple foreign dictators, including, you know, for example, Saudi Arabia covering up the Khashoggi murder, stuff like that. In fact, Jared Kushner said, we've got this under control who pursued a policy with regard to a pandemic against medical advice, against the advice of of wise advisors that has caused now America to have the worst case of COVID in the world. We are 4% of the world's population. We have 20% of the world's deaths and cases and people call in and they say, Is he doing this because he's stupid? Is he doing this because he's incompetent? Is he doing it just because some American billionaires want this kind of thing? Or is he doing it because a foreign government said, we don't like America and we want you to take it down? What are your thoughts on that question, Craig, and how does it interface with your book, American Compromise? Right,
3: well, we've heard the the question asked many different ways, and one of it is, one of the questions is, what does Vladimir Putin have on him? Why is he doing everything to, to please Putin? Putin wanted to destroy the idea that American democracy was real. He said it was corrupt. And now over 70 million Americans, the followers of Donald Trump, actually seem to believe that. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. So I went back and tried to answer the question. And one thing I realized is almost nobody had bothered to ask former members of the KGB, the feared Soviet spy agency And I had extended interviews, really, dozens and dozens of hours with a man named Yuri Schwitz, who was a major in the KGB in the 1980s. He was stationed in Washington, in Washington, D.C., and his colleagues in the New York station, the New York residentura of the KGB, we're recruiting Donald Trump as an asset, and I went step by step, and I think it's the first detailed narrative of how this happened.
2: Well, we have an hour here. Let's let's just walk through it. <laughs> this starts in 1977. Tell me about that.
3: Right. Well, Trump at the time had just married his first wife Ivana, who was a Czech national and the Czech secret service, which is known as the STB reported to the KGB. This was the years of the evil empire, of the Soviet union, the cold war was raging. And so they began to keep tabs on Donald Trump that way. And that became important. We're, we're not sure exactly how far that frame developed, but we do know they reported it on Trump to the KGB my story starts out a little later that i do talk about the czech secret service but the real story starts a little later around 1980 and at that time trump had developed his first really genuinely successful and and many of them were not really successful real estate ventures and this was a grand hyatt hotel which is right next to grand central station and like any hotel it opened around 1980 and like any hotel It needed a lot of television sets. And where did Trump buy his TV sets but an electronic store on Lower Fifth Avenue near the Flatiron Building, if you're familiar with New York? Yeah, and you're talking about, hang
2: on just a second, Craig, you, you kind of flew through that and just, I think a lot of people might have missed what you're saying. He built a hotel, it's got hundreds and hundreds of rooms in it. I've stayed in that hotel, I've taught seminars in that hotel, in fact, and each one of those rooms has a television in it, so he needed hundreds and hundreds of televisions. So where did he go to get those? Go ahead.
3: Right, you might think that a blue chip franchise outfit like Hyatt would go to a reliable third party vendor. But instead, they went to a place called Joy Ludd Electronics on Lower Fifth Avenue, and Trump bought hundreds of TV sets there, and it happens that that electronics store was controlled by the KGB. It was sort of a KGB front. And that's the man, one of the co-owners, was known as, according to my source, was known as a spotter agent. And what does a spotter agent do? he spots potential recruits for the KGB. And when this transaction took place, for the very first time, the doors of the KGB were opened to Donald Trump. Oh, hang on just a second. How do you know
2: that Donald Trump didn't patronize this particular store simply because some person three or four levels down inside his organization did a search on those TVs that they needed in New York City and found that that store was offering the lowest price?
3: Well, they may well have been offering the lowest price, and it may well be that Trump really didn't know what he was doing. That's quite possible. But the KGB didn't know what it was doing. And according to my sources, the owner, he was a Ukrainian Jew when he left the Soviet Union in 1972. It was virtually impossible for Soviet Jews to get out of the Soviet Union. And the KGB made a deal with him, and it did with many, many people, and they said, we'll let you immigrate on one condition. And that is you have to work for the KGB when you're in the United States. And later on, that's exactly what happened. The store was, the FBI was keeping an eye on it. I talked to a former federal prosecutor who said he hung out with the FBI watching the comings and goings of it. And this was a way to first make contact with Donald Trump. He was one of hundreds of people. This was not one great 40-year plan. This took place over 40 years. Rather, it was a sequence of operations that developed and developed and developed. And this is how, at least this part of the uh, intelligence began. So
2: how did they make contact with Donald Trump? I mean, I'm still operating the assumption here that it wasn't Trump who walked you to the store and bought the TVs. How did they get to him?
3: Right. It was the owner, Samian Kinslin. I confirmed it with him. He confirmed it by email. Originally, he had told Bloomberg News that he sold hundreds of TVs to Trump. So that much had been out there. What is new here is his alleged relationship with the KGB and the store's relationship with the KGB. And this is from my source, Yuri Spitz, who is, to my knowledge, the first KGB operative, the first former operator of the KGB, rather, to come out in public and to explain exactly how it happened and how it, how this operation went forward and that they gradually reeled Trump in. He may not have done this knowingly initially, but this was the start of it.
2: That's fascinating. We're talking with Craig Unger, his brand new book just out, American Compromise, how the KGB cultivated Donald Trump as an asset. Did we have a foreign asset as president for four years? We're going to find out. Craig Under is with us. You can check out his book, American Compromot.
1: This is the
2: Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back with Craig in just a moment. Stick around. Hartman Report is a free daily podcast seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. We're talking with Craig Unger. I'm wary of reporting that is you know the six degrees of separation from kevin bacon kind of thing you know that that somebody knew somebody who knew somebody and therefore how did the kgb reach out to donald trump in 1980 when his hotel bought a bunch of tvs from this kgb front store how did that happen
3: well and kislin confirmed this to me in an email he would not go into details whether it was by telephone or whatever so i i don't know all the answers to that but the transaction itself had been first reported by Bloomberg News. What is new here is Kislin's relationship to the k g b and By the way, my source on this has come forward in public, and you know he's said this quite publicly so once the doors are open they began to assess whether trump is worthwhile to recruit that is at the time trump was a businessman who wasn't even nationally famous he was famous in new york at that time i think uh, for the grand hyatt but he was not certainly not known internationally and the kgb in addition he had he had no access to classified information but the kgb often recruited Influential businessman. A case in point is the late Armand Hammer, who ran uh, mm. Occidental Petroleum. And he had these very lucrative concessions with the Soviet Union. And he was what they called a special unofficial contact. That is, it's different from being a Soviet agent. If you were an agent, uh, that meant you could be tasked with very specific operations and you'd have to report on that. Uh, is that what you'd call a useful contact, idiot? Well, I mean, that goes farther down the road. It's very, very hard mm-hmm. to discern what is in Trump's mind at, at any point. I mean, at a certain point, he'd have to be pretty idiotic not to know he's doing all these favors to the Soviet Union.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they reached out to him in 1980.
3: And how did Trump respond to that? Do we have any record of that? We do not have a record of that. I I think he thought he got a good deal on the TV sets and and so forth. But what happened next is that other people with the KGB started reaching out to him and assessing whether it was worthwhile expending resources on him to develop him. And that happened, and it led up to his being invited by the KGB to the Soviet Union in 1987. And there his go ahead. Now, you, you can see some of this developed in the newspaper clips during this time. You know, Trump was a sort of a party animal back in these years. In 1987, he met Jeffrey Epstein. They had parties where they had 28 girls and two guys. He was fashioning himself as a latter-day version of Hugh Hefner. But if you look at the newspaper clips from that era in the Washington Post, and in The New York Times, Trump is starting to present himself as an expert on nuclear weapons. He says that he should be running the nuclear arms limitations talk for Ronald
2: Remarkable. at the we'll, time. We'll, we'll get to that and just on right, just on the other side of this break. Craig Unger is with us. His new book, American Compromot. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a
0: life a good one? Is it the adventure you have?
2: Unger, the author of American Compromise. So, Craig, 1977, uh, Donald Trump marries Ivana Zelnikova, a uh, 28-year-old Czech model, and the KGB starts watching him. In 1980, a front organization for them in New York sells him, presumably at a really, really good price, TVs for one of his major hotels, and kind of opens the door for a relationship between him and them, which takes us to 1984, where, is it David Bogatin? And then Trump starts talking about, I'm an expert on nuclear arms. How did Trump go from being, in 1980, basically a guy who was representing himself as a playboy, as, as that generation's answer to Hugh Hefner? You know, with these parties with Jeffrey Epstein, with just the two of them and 20 young women. How does he go from that to publishing a piece in the New York Times and the Washington Post four years later, Presenting himself as an expert on the nuclear arms relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union.
3: Right. See if you go through the clips of the mid 80s, that Trump is talking to reporters at the New York Times and Washington Post and saying that he's a world leading expert on nuclear arms, which of course he's sore. But according to my source, Yuri Schmitz, who was in the KGB at that point, and Yuri recruited spies back. Then he was in the Washington bureau, and all the stuff with Trump was going on in the New York. And you see them pumping him full of KGB talking points, saying that while you have these wonderfully unorthodox views on foreign policy, Uh, you should really run for higher office. You should be president. You should make all these views public. Now Trump reaches out to papers in the United States. Um, And the next step is that he is invited to the Soviet Union, and the entire trip is overseen by the KGB. There's a general in the KGB named Ivan Gromakov who initiates the invitation. It goes through the Soviet ambassador directly to Trump, and he's flown over by Intourist, which is really a subsidiary of the KGB. It's a travel agency, but it makes sure you are fully monitored the whole trip that there are you're being monitored in your bedroom at the hotel once you get there and so forth and all the while trump according to yuri is being force-fed talking points by the kgb and that leads up to his exploratory run for the presidency people have forgotten about this but this is for the 1988 nomination
2: Wow. And that was the end of Reagan's term, and that was when his vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, got the Republican nomination. Was Trump planning on running as a Democrat or a Republican? And how serious did that get?
3: Yes, as a Republican. And it was reported in the New York Times, and Trump went up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, To a restaurant called Jokin's and that's sort of a rite of passage if you're running for the Republican nomination and you want to enter the primaries that year and the Times did report on and it's sort of buried and forgotten but what is absolutely extraordinary is what happens next and I think it's the closest to real evidence of this that's pretty solid again this comes from Yuri Spitz the, the major in the KGB And what you see is, in September of 1987, Trump takes out a full-page ad in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe, and it's full of all these wacky talking points about American foreign policy. And it says, America's being taken to the cleaners, and that we're being screwed over by NATO, and our allies, like Japan, are just not worth it. And these are, No American politician was talking like that at this time, or frankly, any time since. NATO has been uh, a real bulwark for the rise of the Western alliance and our ties to Western markets in Europe, of course, and in Japan as well. So why was he trying to demolish them? It's because the KGB wanted to. And Yuri, meanwhile, my source had gone back to Moscow, and he was in uh, KGB headquarters in September of 1987, and the KGB circulated an internal memo celebrating the acquisition of a new asset by the KGB and a successful active measure that's an active propaganda. And that
2: was Uh, and that was Donald Trump publishing these pieces in The Washington Post and The New York Times calling for breaking up our relationship with NATO and Japan, right?
3: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, amazing stuff. We'll continue on the other side of this break. Craig Unger is with us. His new book out, American Compromise. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading from the polar bear expedition, the heroes of America's forgotten invasion of Russia, 1918-1919. It's a story, by the way, that the Russians remember well, but most Americans are unaware of. This is from the prologue, Nizhny Gora, Russia, January 19th, 1919. They've been expecting it for weeks, hell, months. And so the men of Company A of the 339th Infantry Regiment, the polar bears, as they would come to call themselves, have stood night and day in 40 below zero temperatures. They stamp their feet and try not to touch bare skin on the frozen barrels of their weapons, lest their flesh be ripped off. They peer through the deep ebony night of their dark log-lined dugouts into the frigid tundra toward the south and east across the ice-choked river and watch for it, wait for it, and wonder how many will come and how they will perform when they do. And they wonder, too, if and how they will ever get out of this place, this frozen Hades, this last place on earth at the top of the world. And then early on this morning, they do come, a horde of them, dim forms in the distance spread out across the Vaga River, some on skis, others on snowshoes, all of them armed, like ghost warriors traversing the river Styx, hundreds of them to their mere handful of 46. Bolos, the men call them, Bolsheviks. Now a shell flung from upriver, arcing and piercing the barely gray of dawn flies over the village. Lieutenant Harry Meade awakens with a start, quickly dons his fur hat and overcoat and boots, and races to the far outpost where this scant group of half dozen men stands guard against not only the enemy, with the tide of history the sergeant hands him his field glasses and he squints through the misty blowing snow the only sounds the sharp snapping of frozen tree branches and the dull booming of the river ice cracking he sees them now coming on several hundred yards of the distance and he quickly understands that the company is probably doomed Now a grayish form enters his view much closer, and he peels the glass from his eye. Steam comes from his mouth as the thin outpost is now about to be overrun by a nearer group of the enemy, who have snuck closer and rise like dervishes from their concealment in the deep snow. Lieutenant Harry Meade, late of Valparaiso, Indiana, and Detroit, Michigan, stranded more than 200 miles from his regiment's base at Archangel Russia, doesn't have to speak as the mass of bolos descends on his small attachment. His men are already furiously firing their machine guns and rifles at this grisly apparition, all while more artillery shells spew over them and land amid them. Meade yells the words anyway, as if by rote, as if it's not too late, as if any of them has a chance. Fire, Meade orders his men. For God's sake, fire! Chapter 1, The March to Intervention. The preliminaries began on March 9, 1918, with millions of high-explosive and gas shells raining across the front between the northern French cities of Prey and St. Quentin. The smothering of the British-held territory continued through the week and beyond, and was topped off with a continuous salvo from 6,700 pieces of German artillery, which began at 4.30 in the morning on March 21st. Five hours later, heavy mortars began raining death and destruction on the British 5th Army, and five minutes later, the advance of three German armies, 69 divisions in all, poured from their trenches and headed east with the aim of splitting the junction of British and French forces on the southern end of the Somme Front and sending the Brits in a panic for the protection of the channel ports. There was an urgency to the assault, and for good reason. With the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on March 3rd, Russia Had officially taken itself out of the war and relieved the pressure on Germany's Eastern Front. After years of fighting a two front war, German forces were now consolidated. Meanwhile, the United States, which had declared war on Germany nearly a year before, had yet to send enough men across the Atlantic to tip the balance in the Allies' favor on the Western Front. But the Yanks were coming. During that spring of 1918, therefore, Germany had a small and unique window in which to act. While the numbers favored them, and so the hand picked assault troops went forward in great and deadly haste. Above the attackers, 326 fighter aircraft soared into the morning, their opposition just 261 British planes. Following barrages, small teams of stormtroopers appeared out of the deep fog and, ignoring the British strongpoints, cut swaths through the trenches with light machine guns, automatic weapons, and flamethrowers. By the end of the first day of what would be a months-long offensive, the Germans had pushed more than four miles through the British and were still advancing. In their wake, they left the bodies of an untold number of defenders, thousands of wounded and 21,000 prisoners. By March 23rd, three huge guns made by the arms manufacturer Krupp had been hauled forward and began sending shells into Paris, 72 miles away. 200 Parisians would be killed on that day alone those unlucky Parisians would be but grains of sand in an ocean of war that had enveloped France since August of 1914, when a gray tide of Germans had pushed across the border with Belgium and by early September had very nearly taken Paris. The flood was checked on the Marne River east of the French capital in early September, but the war, it would eventually become known as the Great War, had only begun... The Germans intended to stay, and by the end of 1914, a dizzying series of parallel zigzagging trenches, French, German, and to the north, those of France's British allies, scarred the French soil, the polar bear expedition.
0: the way car buying should be.
2: And welcome back, we're talking with Craig Unger, the author of multiple books, including his newest American Compromot. And we kind of left the story off in 1987, as I recall. With the Soviet Union, keep in mind this is pre Gorbachev, pre Glasnost, and all this kind of stuff, with the Soviet Union actually essentially throwing a party that they've recruited a new agent in Donald Trump? Do I have that right or am I exaggerating?
3: Well, Gorbachev has taken over by then, but it's, a, ah. it's before the real thaw, it really is. I mean, the Soviet mm-hmm. Union crumbled in 1991, and this is several years mm-hmm. earlier, and what you see is that. Donald Trump has taken out a full-page ad in uh, three of the nation's most prestigious newspapers that are putting forth KGB talking points. And the KGB actually circulates a memo, an internal memo, announcing that as a successful active measure done by their new asset, Donald Trump
2: right and then he goes up to new hampshire to explore a run for president so bring us up to the republican primary you know i mean it's been widely reported in the press that he's been doing a lot of business with oligarchs all over the world but particularly from the former soviet states and from russia and apparently laundering their money is that a part of this story
3: yes it is if you go back to 1984 you'll see a man named david Bogdan, who is another soviet emigre and trump had just built Trump Tower, and it was Blitzy, and everyone was ooing and eyeing over. It. And this David Bogenin comes in; he has five million dollars in cash. He meets personally with Donald Trump, and he says, "I'll take five condos. Uh, five million dollars, by the way, back then is the equivalent of about fifteen million today." So Trump doesn't ask any questions; he takes the money, and this is an, in effect money laundering. The, the two predicates for money laundering are all cash transactions with an anonymous enterprise and uh, trump did this repeatedly again and again and again the state of new york attorney general investigated a bit and said this was money laundering and what's amazing to me is there were at least 1300 similar cases that is trump condos that were sold under similar conditions that could pass for money laundering all cash anonymous per 1300 times yeah, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's a pattern. So, I mean, one,
2: yeah, this is this problem- is why Eric Trump said we don't need a lot of money from American banks. We're getting all the money we need from Russia. Is that what he was talking about?
3: Well, that's certainly part of it. It continues later on after Trump goes many, many times in Atlantic City, and a company called Bayrock, a real estate development company, spends in uh, Trump Tower, and they offer him fabulous deals don't have to put up a dime. You develop the buildings. We'll do all of that. We'll raise hundreds of millions of dollars and we'll give you a, a very healthy piece of the action. We just want to use your name. And this is money that was coming from enterprises tied to the Russian mob and the KGB and its successors in the Russian Federation.
2: So we see that Trump was doing that. I mean, my understanding is that there were also Saudi billionaires who were buying into Trump Tower and buying Trump products, and there were billionaires from other countries who were laundering money for him too. Is this a matter of, at least at this stage in the game, here we're we're up to the uh, presumably the early 2000s, late 90s, I think is when his bankruptcies were, that he is displaying some kind of loyalty to one particular country, to Russia, or just that any oligarch or any corrupt regime that comes along and says, hey, Donald, we can make you millions of dollars if you'll just launder money for us. He just jumps at it. I mean, is this Donald Trump being a career criminal or is this Donald Trump being a Russian asset?
3: Well, both. I mean, I don't think there's a real difference. I mean, I regard his temperament as that of a mobster. But the deal he, I mean, the. Russian intelligence is very, very closely tied to Russian organized crime. It's not like the United States where you always see the Italian mafia at war or the FBI. Russian organized crime is part of Russian intelligence. They use it and they're allowed to work as they work within the parameters of what was the KGB successors. Hmm. So, uh, deal with next anyone, step. Anyone, really, the Saudis, as you say, or other people as well.
1: Right.
2: I realize it's an aside to this. I don't know if you cover uh, Jared Kushner getting a, a billion dollars out of the Middle East while he's in the White House. I mean, isn't that the sort, the same sort of thing, exploiting a position to enrich yourself?
3: Absolutely. I think when we look at the pardons that came out a, few, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're going to uh, unravel a lot a lot of uh, scandalous behavior that is people were pardoned because. They took part in deals and may have kicked back huge sums to Donald Trump and his family.
2: We're talking with Craig Unger, his new book, American Compromot. Craig, in some of your writings, and I know there's a chapter about it in your book, American Compromot, you talk about Donald Trump's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Is this related in any way to his relationship with Russian
3: mobsters? Well there there is a big overlap I think and you know as I said the title of the book is American compromot compromot means compromising material and when I look at it, maxwell uh you know most people have looked at it, sexual trafficking which it is and was and was horrible but I look at it more as a Compromise factory as they are manufacturing recording the dirty little secrets of the richest and most powerful people in the world they had video cameras so they had enormous amounts of compromise and how it was used is absolutely fascinating because you have to look at well who had control of this compromise clearly epstein did to some extent before he was killed but he was investigated by 2005 so the palm beaks County Sheriff's Department had some of it. The lawyers on both sides had some of it. Ghislaine Maxwell had some of it. And I even tracked down a former sheriff from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department who told me he had 478 sex videos, DVDs, and he escaped to Russia. I tracked him down by phone in Moscow and clearly he was trying to make deals with the Russian government, which appeared to be selling all that compromise to Russia.
2: Now, is this 478 sex videos of Donald Trump with underage girls at Jeffrey Epstein's place, or just all kinds of wealthy and powerful Americans that Jeffrey Epstein invited over to have sex with underage girls?
3: Well, it it appears to be the latter, though there was one case, an associate of Epstein told me that around 2004, Epstein and Trump had a big falling out. they have been friends for around uh, 15 years or so. And, and uh, Epstein was to Trump. And he started showing around photos of Trump with, uh, I believe, two half-naked girls. And I was told they were girls, not women. They were quite young. And they are Trump is in the photo, and they are pointing at left, uh a wet stain on Trump's trousers that are in an unfortunate location.
1: Hmm.
2: Meaning what? That he had just had sex?
3: Well... Or that he's he incontinent? That, and that, um, <laughs> well, I'm not going to go there, to be honest. That possibility had not occurred to me, but I guess it is... A, though Trump appears to be smiling in the photo. Well, his former, photo.
2: his former producer over at Celebrity Apprentice says that he wears diapers. I mean, you know, who knows? Right, right. I don't know about that one. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. We're talking with Craig Unger done a deep dive into many of the secrets of Donald Trump. Is he uh, you know, is he a, a Russian agent? Is he a, a, simply a useful idiot? Is he exploiting these you know, what what's really going on here? Let's we'll, we'll get right down to the nub of this. Let's stick around as we uh, hit this break here. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Craig Unger's new book, American Compromise, right after this. On the science revolution this week is Dr. Michael Mann on the new climate war. He shares how fossil fuel companies have waged a 30 year campaign to deflect blame and responsibility and delay action on climate change. Dr. Eric Feigelding drops by warning us the coronavirus could be a thermonuclear pandemic. He'll also talk about the new COVID variants and what he would do differently. Severine Fleming from Greenhorns is here about food security, regenerative agriculture and the hidden value of local food. Tune into the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. So, Craig, where do we go from Jeffrey Epstein? Well, first of all, what in, in your mind, what is the significance of Trump's relationship with Epstein? It sounds like he was in a position where he was being blackmailed by multiple people, or, or at least was compromised and was vulnerable to blackmail, from the, the Soviets, from Jeffrey Epstein. Were there others? I mean, he had done, well, been doing business were- with mob bosses, right? He, that's how he got the concrete to build Trump Tower. Or am I missing something?
3: You know, the truth is with Epstein, I think it's an incredibly Byzantine maze because you have to wonder who really had and has the compromise. Epstein's lawyers would have had access to it, and they were from this giant law firm, Kirkland and Ellis which included William Barr, Alex Acosta, who was Secretary of Labor and gave the sweetheart deal to Epstein, to a lot of major high-ranking people in Trump's Justice Department. People like Brian Benkowski was head of the criminal commission. He was part of that group at Kirkland and Ellis. So there's a lot of that. Also, the Epstein operation, it's clear Epstein had links to Russians himself. I interviewed an Israeli agent who said in, in the late 80s, around 1988, he saw Epstein at Albert Maxwell's office, that's Galen's father, in London with Ehud Barak, who later became Israeli Prime Minister and at the time was Minister of Intelligence. So. There are certainly a lot of questions about Epstein's links to intelligence. If you recall, Alex Acosta, the Secretary of Labor, said he was told not Epstein because he was with intelligence. And when Epstein mm. died, we don't know if that was suicide or murder. And
2: What's your opinion? Uh,
3: I think it's just hard for so many things to go wrong, when can't take place at one time is my view, but I, it's, to me it's really an unsolved murder right now.
2: You mean uh, like the video dead. surveillance cameras were shut down, the guards that were normally there were taken away, and then, gee, he's dead. Is that what you're talking about?
3: Absolutely, and he was probably the most vulnerable person in the entire uh, prison system here in New York. So how could right. that possibly have gone wrong? But these is New York looking into I that? You know, I can't get all the answers to that, to be honest. The other material I uncovered that I think is new is about and is really, really relevant. If you look at the hacking that's been going on, this is the whole solar wind scandal and the, the massive hacking that is just now being uncovered that the Russians did with our government. Is the question of did that go through Jeffrey Epstein? Because Epstein himself has uh, ties with Silicon Valley and the science of technology. He met several times with Bill Gates, with Elon Musk. He had ties to the, tech, the big tech wizards at MIT and Harvard. Uh, uh, and hmm. some of his people, he had a number of them uh, were with them in that regard. Stick,
2: stick around, Craig. Hang on.
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey,
2: my new book is out. The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. In this book, I trace the history of the struggle against oligarchy from America's founding to the United States' war with the feudal confederacy to President Franklin Roosevelt's struggle against economic royalists who wanted to block the New Deal. In each of those cases, the oligarchs lost the battle. But With increasing right-wing control, we're at a crisis point. Want to know more? You can sign up for virtual book events. The Seattle Town Hall virtual event is Thursday, February 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And the Books and Books virtual event in conversation with David Corden is Tuesday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. The links are all over at TomHartman.com. And welcome back. We're talking with Craig Unger, his new book, American Compromot. So, Craig, I want to, in this last seven or eight minutes we've got, just really nail this down, or six minutes, I guess, we've got. Have you found evidence that Donald Trump, when he was president of the United States, was actively working on behalf of Russia or in ways that furthered Russian interests where you could tie that to something whether he was being blackmailed whether he was being bribed whether he was being promised future
3: opportunities whatever well he he was regarded by russian intelligence and the kgb before it as a, a special unofficial contact and that's different from being an active agent who can be with certain operation it's a slightly more informal designation where he's a trusted friend he can be relied upon to do favors for russia and he did that again and again and again. I mean, we saw it in Helsinki. I mean it was, it was a, a, a constant refrain when he was president. Uh, but you also see various actions that, some of which were technically quite legal, but nonetheless, he was acting as a Russian agent for asset. Uh, that is, just before the 2016 election, you had uh, Donald Trump Jr. giving a speech. In France at a French think tank. Uh, he was paid over $50,000 for it. And of course, all of that is perfectly legal. Uh, what is interesting, though, is the think tank was widely regarded as, Russian, as a front for Russian intelligence. And they were passing to Donald Jr. their talking point for what they wanted his father to do as president in the Middle East. Fair enough, uh, once Trump became president, he did exactly what the Russians wanted. They, he withdrew American troops from Syria, he abandoned our Kurdish allies, and left the Russians uh, in a dominant position in that vitally important strategic area. And what my book does, it shows one after another event like that happening again and again and again, and that Trump is effectively working as a Russian asset, and according to Yuri Schmitz, that's precisely what he was.
2: Do you think he was taking these actions because they had succeeded in, uh, you know, some may say brainwashing, but, you know, the Russians have a point of view of the world and themselves that, you know, that he had simply adopted... Their worldview as opposed to the American worldview, and I'm thinking of, you know, blowing up the Iran nuclear deal, although Russia was a party to that, but Iran is an ally of Russia's, you know, pulling the US out of NATO or or threatening to and and certainly uh, taking a meat axe to NATO in general, the same thing with the United Nations, the same thing with this anti climate stuff, because you know oil is one of the principal funders of the Russian government. Are these evidence of quid pro quo? kinds of corruption or I'm afraid that the PP tapes are going to come out kind of corruption or are they simply Donald Trump really believes that what's good for Russia is also good for America?
3: Right. I don't think it's what he naturally he believes. He's, he's about what's good for Donald Trump. And every, he does something hmm. for Russia. They do something for him. And we don't know all the answers yet, but we can see certainly hundreds of millions of flooding into them. And, I mean, take the money laundering series alone. Someone gives you 5 or $10 million, you turn a blind eye to it, and you get rich. You keep doing that again and again, 1,300 times. It's not necessary to put it in on paper, to do a private contract, to even spell it out verbally. This is just a guy coming to you with a money, and you accept it. And then when the same people uh, suggest you do something or tell you what's in their interest, you help them out. They do a favor for you, you do one for them. And I think that's the way it's been working most of the time. That said, they do have enormous amount of uh, material over them. Think of all the conversations he's had with Vladimir Putin. The American people do not have access to those conversations, and they're vitally important in national security terms. Vladimir Putin does. He can release them at any time. And Trump knows that. And there there more than likely is sexual compromise on him. And I I would also say now we're at a real turning point with Trump out of office. He can't really do much for them anymore. And Putin is in the relationship is much, much weaker. So I would not be surprised if Putin tries to reset things with Biden, and that may include releasing some of the compromise everyone's been wanting to see.
2: Oh, that's interesting. So you think Putin's ready to throw him under the bus?
3: Well, Putin's in real trouble now, too. Partly it's Navalny, who, I mean, as our interview began, was just sentenced to another two and a half years in jail. So uh, he is threatened there, and he no longer has Trump as an asset. So he is much weaker, and he might try to reset things, or at least that's what my sources tell me.
2: Well, that wouldn't be a bad thing, would it?
3: Not so much, but he is under threat from other sources as well, from uh, Nikolai Potrashev is head of the FSB. He being Putin uh, or Trump? Putin is. uh uh-huh been reports of medical problems and so forth so i think there's going to be a lot of unstable uh, things are are not very stable anymore
2: fascinating stuff craig thanks for the research thanks for writing the book and thanks for coming on the program here and laying it all out for us i really appreciate it craig Unger. the book is american compromise craig thanks keep up the great work thank
3: you for having me i appreciate it Tom. Mm-hmm.
2: my pleasure craig we'll be right back This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. I'm reading from the preface. This is page four. Suzanne and I exchanged small talk on her brother's driveway that day in 2010 she and the family were still in preparation and packing mode for their annual camping vacation into the hinterlands of maine and suzanne had been greeted by her brother andre with a long shopping list she told me she worked for a domestic violence agency in town and that they had recently developed a new program that she was calling the domestic violence high risk team their primary aim was simple she said we try to predict domestic violence homicides before they happen so we can prevent them it sounded immediately implausible So implausible, in fact, that I thought I'd misheard some elemental piece of it. Predict, I remember saying. You said predict domestic violence homicides? I had come across domestic violence in my reporting over the years, not only in Cambodia, but also in places like Afghanistan, Niger, and Honduras. But it had never been a focus for me. Instead, it was always adjacent to whatever other story I was writing, so much so that it was practically banal. The young girls jailed for love crimes in Kabul, the Indian child brides who gave interviews only in front of the men who control them, the Tibetan women forcibly sterilized by the Chinese government, the teenage brides in Niger cast from their villages after post-pregnancy fistulas made them pariahs, the Romanian women forced to birth multiple children under Ceaușescu and who now in their early 30s were grandmothers fated to poverty, the Cambodian street workers beaten and gang-raped for weekend sport by well-heeled Khmer teenagers. All of these women in every country were brutalized and controlled by men as a matter of routine. Men made the rules, primarily through physical violence. It was there lurking in practically every story I'd ever covered around the world, a shadowy background so obvious I didn't even have to ask about it most of the time. It was as common as rain. Until that moment in the driveway with Suzanne Dubas, if I thought of domestic violence in the United States at all, I saw it as an unfortunate fate for the unlucky few, a matter of bad choices and cruel environments. A woman hardwired to be hurt. But I never envisioned it as a social ill, an epidemic we can actually do something about. Now here was Susan Dubas talking about preventative measures for a type of violence that, for the first time, I saw operating along a continuum. The young girl in India married as a child. The Tibetan woman sterilized. The Afghan woman jailed. The housewife in Massachusetts brutalized by her husband. They all shared a common privation what domestic violence victims across the world lacked. Agency in their own lives. The forces that brought a Cambodian prostitute to the brink of death were the same forces that killed thousands of women and children and men, but mostly women and children, across America and the entire globe every year. An average, in fact, of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe, and this does not include men or children. Everything in my body suddenly came alive that day. I saw all the faces of women around the world from over two decades of work, and I realized how rarely I'd gazed inward at my own country, at what we got wrong, and what it meant. The universality of domestic violence and how it crisscrosses geographical, cultural, and linguistic barriers. Maybe all those other stories were in preparation for the day that I'd meet Paul Monson and look at the mountains from his living room windows. I ended up following Suzanne to the farmer's market and then to the grocery store and then to the liquor store as she prepped for her camping trip. I helped her carry ice and peaches and hamburger meat. I asked question after question while she drove and while her mother Pat sat in the passenger seat chiming in here and there. How did it work? How many have you stopped? What else can you predict? My questions were vast and endless. Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions. That if things were bad enough, victims would just leave. that restraining orders solved the problem. And that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved. That going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children. That violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence, perhaps most notably mass shootings, that lack of visible injury signaled a lack of seriousness, and perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing to do with us at all. Over the next few years, Suzanne Dubas and her colleague Kelly Dunn patiently taught me about the scope and history of an issue that still today is too often hidden. I learned why past approaches had failed and what we could do more effectively today, between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. This figure is likely an underestimate as it was pulled from the FBI's supplementary homicide reports, which gather data from local police departments, and participation is voluntary. 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation. And the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. The UNODC report called home the most dangerous place for women. The book No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. Two quick things that I just wanted to share with you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. Number one, I watched the funeral of Officer Sicknick of the Capitol Police, you know, which was very, very moving. And Interestingly, Fox News refused to carry it, and uh, their hosts are saying that Democrats don't support the cops. It's bizarre. You can see, you can read that over at Media Matters.org, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, in the Capitol building itself, and in the in the various Senate and House office buildings where the Capitol Police, you know, are running the show. And the Capitol Police is a very extraordinarily professional police department. But they also take the risks that police officers do, and this is where we've seen 140 police officers injured in this, numerous traumatic brain injuries, broken ribs, one guy lost an eye, Officer Sicknick lost his life. Two of these police officers now have committed suicide, presumably as a result of traumatic brain injury, causing, you know, this is a not uncommon thing, we're seeing it among soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, really, really high suicide rates from people who've experienced traumatic brain injury. So, I just wanted to tip my hat to the Capitol Police, and I have always had very positive interactions with Capitol Police. Michelle in Denver. Hey, Michelle, what's up?
1: Freedom is not allowing people to die from COVID. A, I lost my aunt yesterday. I lost her. I I'm mean, my sister in law, she didn't even have time. She had no time, two hours she went into the hospital and she's gone. I don't understand how people can be, 72 million people voted to continue this. And we're paying a heavy price. This country was never built on people being equal, never. And I don't know how we're gonna survive this because I'm not forgiving them, I'm not. This is beyond irreprehensible, what's happening to people we're losing our livelihoods we're losing our homes we're losing our jobs people are are barely hanging on right now and people said this is okay forgive them move on how do you move on you can't it's hard when this is preventable all of it was preventable he needs to be in prison the republican party needs to go with him mitch mcconnell how can we have him and in elected lindsey graham they all sat by and watched this they watch american citizens die and people of color are getting hit the hardest and i'm a black woman who just lost somebody and who's now a statistic in that I don't know how they expect us to move forward like this. How? And some black people voted, too, against their best interests. How do you do that? I see homeless every day, and it breaks my heart. I don't have a million dollars to give them. I can only give them what I have. And entire families in shelters. (sighs) And in food lines. We gotta change. And we gotta help these people. I don't care about working with them anymore. I just wanna get people help and medicine. How can we do this? How can we do this to each other? For a dollar for their tax cuts? Four hundred thousand people have died for tax cuts. <laughs> and I grieve for the other families and those who have lost everything, their businesses their homes and we've got to get the rest of the Republican Party out there's no way none of them should be in office not doing what they've done to the American people I agree and I just want to say thank you for all you do Tom because and you're, you keep me sane along with other people I have that helped us fight to get Joe Biden in and get Warnock and the Democrats in office because we've been fighting for a long time and we need peace too. Mm-hmm. We need to find a way to bring back balance and equality and justice, and it be a fair level playing game and not allow people like Trump ever to be in office again, because he's destroying families.
2: We have about 45 seconds until we're going to hit the end of this hour. Would you like to speak briefly about your aunt who you lost?
1: She was a good person. She got COVID from feeding children in school who had no meals. They had no food. She gave the shirt off her back to people. She had just met the love of her life, and they've only been married two years, so he's lost a person he couldn't even spend time with. And there's a family in Mississippi suffering, a beautiful family, a big, huge family that have now lost one of their patriarchs who helped keep the family together and who cared about everybody and was willing to risk her life to feed children because they had no meals to do right in the community. And that's what's important here is people value people, value human beings. Not money, not a house, not a car.
2: Michelle, thank you so much. I'm I'm sorry we're out of time, but you you speak so well for so many. I know so many Americans are in so much pain right now. Thank you for expressing it so brilliantly. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.